Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. I'm your host, Angel Arena, and thank you for tuning in to this brand new episode. So this week, I have a guest who is very cool in many different ways. I've got KJ Relke, who is currently the worship and creative director at Schweitzer Church in Springfield, Missouri. Um, And yes, you guys heard that right. It's Springfield, Missouri, the same city that I'm currently living in. Um, and a funny story of how I actually came across KJ. So I started listening to an episode of the podcast Dear Asian Americans in which KJ was a guest. And I remember just being extremely captivated by his story. And when he said he was from Springfield, I was like, wait, wait, hold up. Springfield, Missouri, like the same the same city, like what are the chances of that happening um, in such I don't know, a strange place in the middle of Missouri. Um, And honestly, KJ was one of the first Asians and one of the first ethnically Korean people that I knew in this town. Um, Today, KJ will be talking about himself, his background, his experience as a transracial adoptee, his relationship with his faith and his Korean identity, um, his podcast, The Jaunty Show, and so much more. So we've clearly got a lot of topics to cover today. But enough from me. KJ, hi. Welcome to Homecoming. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to have a fellow um, Springfieldian on the podcast. And <laughs> we've definitely got a lot of topics to cover But first, would you just be able to introduce yourself to the listeners, you know, uh, basic stuff, your name, pronouns, where do you consider home, your ethnic background, um, whatever else you want to share. And, and like, don't worry about, like, going into too much detail, like, we'll definitely get into more specifics later in the episode. Perfect. Uh, Hello, everyone. My name is KJ Relke. I am an adopted Korean American, uh, raised in Dallas, Texas, which is where I consider home. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I am a cisgendered male, uh, and I am disabled. Uh, I have a, a physical disability on my right side where I was born without a thumb and also, uh, one of my forearm bones. So my right hand looks a little different. Um, Yes, that is all of the things for all of you listeners, I think. Great. Yeah, very succinct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, KJ, uh, to start off and to set some context for the rest of the episode, um, would you mind sharing the story of your adoption and also just post-adoption, your experiences growing up in the U.S. and uh also the issues or different facets of your identity that you thought about? Uh, yes. So this, I think this is the first time that I've been asked about my adoption since starting the John Chi show, um, which is doing the show has really changed how I think about sharing the story. Um, so typically when an adoptee, tells their story, they start with the stories they've been told. 
um, they start with, you know, their, their parents' experience uh, in wanting a child, maybe some of the backstory from their, their, their parents' experience, you know, of, uh, you know, we couldn't get pregnant or we just like felt, you know, if they're religious, they say that we felt called to adapt or, you know, whatever. Um, One of the things that we do on our podcast is try to tell stories from our own perspectives. Uh, So my, I guess my, in my own history, uh, I was born in Daegu, South Korea, um, and was given up for adoption, uh, spent six months um, in the care of a foster mother and her daughters, um, and then was adopted to um, America um, by my two wonderful parents. Uh, I was picked up uh, who they, so they came over and then they picked me up in, I guess I landed in Arizona, I think, because that's where my family was based at the time. Well, that's where like my mom's extended family was based. Um, and so we went there and then I got to meet everyone. Um, and then I grew up in Dallas. Uh, and so have always been like, I went to the same church my whole life uh, until I graduated high school. Um, and generally like I went to um, three different schools, one, two private schools, one public school, but um, just because of, you know, life at that age, uh, my presence in those social spaces was always preceded by my parents. And so um, I never had to really make it a huge deal that I was adopted because like people seeing my parents, whether it was teachers or whatever, um, or like kids coming over to my house or vice versa, um, just like that was very clear. Like I looked nothing like my parents. And so um, adoption was kind of a non-issue for a really long time um, until I went to college and then was less preceded by my parents. And then when I moved to Springfield, uh, am 0% preceded by my parents. Um, so yeah, so that's been an interesting thing. I think I covered what you asked. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sounds like you pretty much answered all the questions (laughs) there. (laughs) It's just, uh, Um, yeah, it's just weird. Like I I feel myself like, Oh, I, I don't know how to tell this story anymore because you know, like there, there are a lot of things that are my mother's side of the story, uh, hmm. which I don't feel like, are my, I mean, even though they are, they, they kind of make up who I am. Uh, that's not my story to tell, you know? Um, so it's interesting. I'm just like having to think about how do I, how do I say these things these days? So. Right. Right. You, you, you probably like have told like the similar story, but in a very different way for, Mm -hmm. for a very long time. But then I think, yeah. And then, and then you suddenly after doing the Jaunchi show, like you were saying, like, you're learning how to tell the story in a different way on your mm-hmm. own terms, which yeah. is which is cool, which is very cool. Um, and when you were growing up in Dallas, uh, were there a lot of other Asian Americans there, a lot of other transracial adoptees that you feel like you could interact with, connect with? Do you think those were communities that existed where you grew up? Um, I mean, there were a lot of minorities in the part of Dallas that I grew up in. So, uh, if you're familiar with the area, I grew up in the Carrollton Farmers Branch part of Dallas, uh, which is like a Northern suburb. Uh, it's fairly minority heavy, I would say, um, a lot of, uh, black and brown people, but, um, if they were, um, a darker skinned Asian, you know, like Southeast or South Asian or something like that, then I probably wouldn't have thought of them as Asian. Um, like, I, I think that's probably partially a product of, um, being raised by white parents and growing up in the nineties, like for me, Asia was just like Korea, China, Japan. Um, and I, I might not even have thought about Korea except for the fact that I was 
am Korean. <laughs> I haven't changed uh, races. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so so that was interesting. Um, I felt like so um, the spaces that I grew up in, like I said, the church and the two uh, private schools that I went to were very white spaces, um, and so there were only a handful of minorities of any um, race or color or ethnicity um, in those spaces. But then in public school, um, there were lots of people. So, uh, that was a pretty diverse experience. And I went to public school from third to fifth grade. Um, but just growing up in Texas and and my family, um, I think my grandfather, uh, on my mother's side grew up close to the border of Texas and Mexico and things. And so, um, we have, uh, borrowed, uh, maybe appropriated, I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, but borrowed a lot of culture and tradition from uh, kind of the Mexican and Mexican-American experience. And so I personally have always felt much closer to um, Mexican slash Latin American culture. Um, Like that makes me feel more at home necessarily, more than maybe a Korean or Asian-American type thing, because I haven't really started identifying as uh, truly Asian-American since until uh, like, post George Floyd's death, really. Uh, So this is a very new identity for me uh, to be proud about, to think about, to, um, to let shape how I interact in the world. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I knew that you had only recently really come to terms and sort of like really wanted to explore your Asian American slash Korean identity, but I didn't know it was like that recent. So, um, yeah, we'll definitely get into uh, more details surrounding that. Um, But one thing that I also want to tackle in regards to your identity is um, you you mentioned this in your episode on The John Chi Show, uh, but you said growing up, you thought of yourself first as a disabled person, Mm -hmm. then a white person, then an adopted person, and finally, at the very end, an Asian American person. So... Can you talk about like each of these identity markers and sort of the role they played in mm-hmm. your identity and, and why that specific progression? Yeah. So um, like now, just because of my own, um, I'm going to use this term, uh, self-racializing. I don't know if it's the right term, but it feels right to me. Uh, because of my own self-racializing, my Asian American identity feels uh, more prevalent and and moved kind of that number moved to the number one position um but it's not, certainly not the oldest it just is the the most new um so my parents uh are christian um and they uh very much uh just love all people um like that that is is the thing that they um that's how they move about the world and they don't um you know as much as uh they are conscious of they don't let um considerations of uh race or sex or you know whatever um control how they interact with people right um so i think that's why uh for me being transracially adopted my asian american identity was so low on that list because for my parents race was a non-issue and so the way that they raised me race was a non-issue um and so the kind of working up the list i guess because I am Korean, um, they would do things um, that would try to help encourage me to celebrate and love my Korean identity. Um, 
So there's like Asian American at the bottom of the list and then Korean American kind of, or I guess just Korean, not even Korean American, but Korean moving up the list. Um, like my mom gave me some uh, books by Linda Sue Park, who is a Korean um, fiction writer, like children slash young adult fiction writer. Um, so I read some of her books. Uh, they gave me like a book on the founders of Holt Adoption Agency, which is what I was adopted through. Um, they, I mean, like growing up, I had uh, lots of different, stuff from Korea. And I even went back to Korea um, the summer after my sixth grade year. So they were very much like for me learning about my origin um, and things like that. But it was just very much like a, I, I don't really know how to teach you about your culture. So here are some things, here's some ways to expose you. And they were in a um, an adoption support group for families. And so I think that they probably had some ideas for that, you know, um, that way. But um, so that was Korean American, but then I think just like adopted and white uh, were never explicitly stated, but were always things that I held dear because, um, that was kind of just a part of how I like adopted was kind of a part of how I introduced myself. Uh, and I'm not really sure why that was. Uh, I think I, I don't know if it w was because my parents went before me in a lot of social spaces. So either people just knew that about me or I had to explain like, well, I'm adopted, you know, whatever. Um, and explain like my siblings just as, as a means of, having small talk you know like oh well let me tell you my family history because i look like i don't belong in my family uh just very light casual small talk um mm -hmm. uh so yeah so then being disabled was i think the top priority or top uh, identity for me because that was the thing where um i guess like if you're asian american that's just like a thing that like kind of fades into the background but like um uh, because we grew up in a fairly diverse place um in dallas so you're just like okay, okay you're not white or you're not black or you're not you know whatever like that's we get that but because i was disabled that was another thing that that makes me different and uh physically disabled right so it's very easy for people to see like i don't have a, a mental disability or like a disability that like kind of controls my motor functions but can seem unseen you know um mm. so uh yeah so that was that was a thing that I, I thought about. I went to a lot of, um, hand camps is the, the way that I say it. Uh, there were some, some camps over the summer, um, that my, the hospital that did my hand surgeries put on for their hand patients. Um, just like really simple. I mean, like any summer camp really, like you would go and do arts and crafts or ride a horse or go do a ropes course, you know, whatever that is, but all of it, all of the people there were, um, their hand patients, which is cool. Um, so I think like things like that, or, you know, um, learning how to play instruments and making sure that I had, um, instructors who were willing to work with me and think through, uh, how to like play piano with only six fingers and a short arm or how to play a guitar or, you know, whatever, uh, learning how to play golf and figuring out like all of the things like that. just as a, I mean, just as a child, right. As you grow and develop into a fully formed human being, it's kind of a lot about, uh, motor skills, you know? And so that was, uh, a big part, like motor skills and fine motor skills, um, was always a hurdle that I had to figure out whether that was playing sports or playing music or just, you know, fitness or whatever that was. Uh, so I think that that's why that was so top of mind because I was just learning how to navigate in a world that is meant for quote unquote normal people. Uh, and at every turn, even simple things like opening a bag of chips or, uh, getting paper towels to dry your hands, right. When like 
because that was before we had any type of automatic paper towel dispensal, right? So it was always manual or uh, pencil sharpeners. Like when you had to grind pencil sharpeners on the wall, right? In, in school, like all of those things were constant reminders about me being disabled, uh, me being left-handed in a right-handed world, like all kinds of things like that, which certainly like my disability is not so great that like it's a, a huge talking point, but it was just really subtle reminders that I was different, really subtle reminders that like this world is not built for people like me or built with people like me in mind at all. Uh, and so I think that's why it is and continues to be probably my number one uh, identity. So, yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm also curious to, ask you about I like I know this is probably a, a super big question um probably Here difficult to answer <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like what what do you feel like it means to be a white person or an Asian American person I know we maybe briefly talked about this when we met like a couple weeks ago but just like I mean, this is this is such a big question. Like, like who who is Asian America? What is Asian America? Um, there are people out there who present as Asian, don't consider themselves Asian. There are people who don't look Asian, like in our mix, for example, and fully consider like consider themselves Asian. So, like, to you, to to identify yourself as as um a white person and that's what's sort of up there in terms of your identity markers like like what did that mean to like why did you identify yourself as that and like what did it mean to you to identify yourself that way if that makes sense yeah so i think it's interesting um because i i say that i identified as a white person kind of anachronistically like looking back on my life I realized that I identified as a white person. That's never something that I would have explicitly said necessarily mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't until I uh, started identifying as Asian American that I was able to look back and be like, oh, that's not how I used to move through the world. Um, so, and I'm also like a cisgendered straight male, right? So uh, that already affords me some privileges and some ways in which I move through the world. And the fact that I'm East Asian, which, uh, you know, like the lighter your skin, the less uh, harmful or threatening or whatever you're perceived by white America, right? So um, the fact that I was a straight cisgendered male and East Asian made me very safe. And so, um, you know, I have to deal with like some of the other um, Asian male stereotypes about being uh, a math genius or good at Kung Fu or nerdy or never the love interest, right? So like there was that. But um, because I wasn't aware of those things growing up, I, I just moved, like, I think because um, how I present is so close to white, straight, cisgendered maledom, like, I was able to kind of think in those terms, right? And I'm also a uh, Christian, um, and I was raised by white. So just like the worldview that I was given, whether explicitly or implicitly, um, by my uh, instructors, by my parents, by my friends, by my uh religious instructors and you know whatever mm-hmm. pastors preachers etc um pr- probably just was that worldview because there was um like white people don't ever talk about race um and don't ever you know what i mean so i think that it was just a thing and i remember specifically in uh like growing up i always expressed an interest in finding my birth parents 
Um, and my parents were uh, always very supportive of me and just were like kind of asking questions like, oh, do you think you want to do this? And you know, like what? And I, I'd always be like, yeah, maybe when I turn like 16, just because that feels like such a big milestone when you're nine to 12. <laughs> you're like, yeah, 16, that's a moment in my life when maybe when I turn 18, you know, or whatever, um, that I, I would want to find my birth parents. Uh, but then I, yeah, it just, in somewhere in the middle of high school, like around 16, I was like, I don't need to fund my birth parents. I really love my parents. Uh, I just want to be a good student, a good member of my family, a good Christian, uh, a good Texan, um, you know, et cetera. And I think part of that too was, uh, my dad, um, my dad has really fallen into his love, like of being from Texas, even though he grew up in Wisconsin, he's like, Nope, I'm Texan now. And so I love, love all of that. So, uh, I had been able to, um, essentially travel the world by 16. Um, I had been to, uh, like most of the continents on mostly on mission trips and things. And so I always heard my dad, um, say like, I'm from the great state of Texas or, you know, whatever. So like for him being from Texas was a big identity. And so that for me, I was like, well, if I want to be a good son, uh, if I want to feel like part of the family, then I should also adopt really loving being from Texas. Um, and so I just left being Asian American aside. I left being Korean American uh, and just focused on all of these other uh, non-racialized ideas. But I think um, to have a non-racialized identity uh, for me meant that I just therefore adopted a white kind of point of view in moving through the world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you you, you feel like, or you felt like your identity was very much like something that was tied to your parents and some something that was like kind of passed down or presented to you by your parents, which which isn't not a negative thing at all. But like you said, it wasn't like the full picture in terms of incorporating your racial identity or your ethnic identity. Yeah, well, I think that there, I mean... I think everyone feels the pressure to uh, either fit into their family or like super not fit into their family, <laughs> depending mm -hmm. on, you know, kind of, and obviously there are degrees of that, but uh, like we all kind of understand that relational aspect of, you know, do I want to identify with, with my family or not? Um, and I think especially in what I have uh, learned or observed in the representations of Asian culture, that uh, sense of family and sense of, uh, you know, honor or whatever, uh, is deeply rooted in kind of Asian cultures. And so even when you come to America, um, you know, I, I feel like the story that's usually presented to me in, in pop culture is, uh, first gen, um, Asian Americans are like trying to do the, I'm an American and an individual and et cetera, while their immigrant parents are like, no, you are part of the family. You're part of this long lineage and history and all those things. Right. So being adopted, I had this extra, um, weight, I think to take on because I wanted to be Korean and I wanted to accept that even though, um, even though I was given up, I, I wanted to, to belong to, to being Korean. Um, so I was like, okay, so I want to accept as much of that worldview as I can. And then I forced it onto the family that I was adopted into. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to inherit my dad's worldview and my mom's worldview and try to be like, try to be a good Relki essentially, because I would never have the opportunity to be a good Kung. 
so yeah, so I think that that's part of what what that was like. Mm. Yeah, you you actually <clears throat> bring up a really interesting idea, right? Like of these of of seeing different representations of Asians and Asian Asian Americans in media, and whether or not you sort of identified with those different stereotypes, narratives, portrayals. Um, I mean, when you were growing up and seeing these different stereotypes and narratives, do you feel like that made you want to identify with being Asian even more? Or do you think that sort of turned you off of searching for that part of your identity? Um, I think for me, it was probably just like I was grasping at anything and everything uh, that I could get a hold of and be like, oh, this is Asian culture, and this is Asian culture, and this is Asian culture. Um, and just holding on to it until such a time when I was able to properly delineate between Chinese culture, Japanese culture, Indian culture, etc., um, to figure out what is Korean culture. Um, I was regularly let down uh, by the lack of specifically Korean representation in media. Uh, like I said, in the 90s, uh, most of my understanding of um asian culture came through jackie chain adventures <laughs> um and maybe pokemon but i had no sense of like what anime was at the time uh so i was just like this is a cool cartoon i didn't think that it was like a japanese cartoon or anything so um yeah and then as i grew up i, I continued to see more um more shift in in media but even now i mean there aren't really a ton of uh great representations in media um when i think about for for younger kids uh that really help like shape their identity and shape like being okay with who you are essentially um and so i think because i knew all of the um stereotypical jokes about asians and uh i also am an asian that like fit into some of those stereotypes like i am very nerdy i was good at math when i was taking math uh I did play piano, but like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And my mom like really pushed me to be a high achiever. So um, obviously she's not a tiger mom, but like I was like able to relate to other Asian American stories in that sense. Um, I was like, okay, like I, I kind of get it. I, I feel like I can fit in, but I always had the sense of like an imposter syndrome and probably also pr uh, perpetuated some really unhelpful stereotypes with my white friends because I didn't know any better. Right. Like I was like, well, it's a good stereotype, right? Like that we're good at math and like, but I didn't at the time didn't have enough awareness and sensibility to realize why that is such a negative thing to perpetuate, you know, regardless of whether or not it's true. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and going back to what you said earlier in the episode, when you said that, you like after you went to college and you spent some time away from your parents um do you like was that when you started fully grasping like hey even though I may not necessarily consider myself as Asian like I am an Asian presenting person and like the people around me label me as that and not a white person like and how do you feel like how did you feel when that sort of happened so it's interesting um i went to college in a very small school uh in the midwest um so it was just a large shift from 
uh you know a big city with a lot of diverse people um and you know growing up like seeing diverse people and learning uh a div- like a wide range of things either from like literally traveling the world or just traveling to little pockets of um like cultural hubs basically in Dallas or whatever or learning world religions and then um you go to uh southern Illinois uh, the small school about an hour east of St. Louis and um, you know, we had probably 1100 undergrads. Uh, and I think that was the first time where I realized, uh, really subtly that race was a thing, um, to be proud about. Um, there were, uh, some students that I would hang out with who were black, who were, um, Latin American, who, uh, were Asian. Although I don't remember, like there were a fair amount of international students, um, mostly from China or Taiwan. Um, there were never any Koreans. I was really bummed about that. But anyways, uh, so there were like some people of color Americans there who were really proud about whatever ethnicity and race that they were. Um, and so without really saying anything, just by being themselves, planted the seed of being proud of who I was before I even thought about who I was. Um but then, you know, uh, shoot, I don't even remember, um, the shooting in Ferguson, um, mm-hmm. happened, I think that was 2013. Um, and I didn't, I don't know my geography, didn't know my geography well enough to realize that Ferguson, Missouri was in St. Louis, which was like literally an hour away from where I went to school. Um, and so that was my first, uh, moment of, racial awareness where um our school was really reeling and wrestling with that um and that was my my first interaction with like the black lives matter movement and uh and then i remember just being like well yeah i mean all lives matter though and and didn't understand um why all lives matter and black lives matter um why there's such friction against that because i was like well i'm a christian i'm supposed to love everybody therefore like all lives matter and not like realizing that like all lives matter on an individual basis is great black lives matter on like a systemic basis is like more important you know um so that was probably one of my first major uh moments of uh awakening to my racial identity uh but then i fell back asleep (laughs) Uh, and then in 2015, as I was getting ready to graduate, um, my wife who was studying at the university of Missouri, um, said like, Hey, Mizzou is, uh, doing Asian American, uh, awareness month, AAPI month. We're celebrating in April, even though like typically we celebrate in May because that's when the actual month is, um, she was like, do you know about this? And I was like, no, I have, what is this? I didn't know we had a month. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so I did some research or whatever. And as I was talking to her, uh, she was like, why do you keep saying they when you're talking about Asian Americans? And I didn't even realize that I was doing it. So that was another moment of um, someone trying to wake me from my slumber. And when I started begin to, so I, I started thinking about that and I'm like, okay, so even my wife, um, who, you know, we weren't married at the time, but we'd spent, I think at that point we've been dating for six years, seven years. Um, so even her thought about me as Asian, maybe not first, you know, but like that was a much higher, uh, identifier on her list, you know, than it was for me. Um, and so, yeah, so that was just an interesting thing. And so I think being, uh, removed from such diversity really makes race 
an issue uh, when you are uh, the only drop of color in a sea of whiteness. Um, you know, maybe not like the only drop of color, but there's much smaller color on the canvas of you know the social makeup of the the landscape. Is that a good way of saying things? I don't know. Wow, what a metaphor. What uh, an artistic I'm metaphor. I'm really, I'm still waiting for my coffee to kick in, so. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's really cool. I mean, what was that AAPI Awareness Week like? Like, what did it consist of exactly? Um. Well, I don't know. First, it was me being annoyed because Mizzou decided to celebrate in April and not in the actual month because they didn't want it to get in the way of their graduation social media. So whatever. But I think it just made me uh, proud to be Asian American. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a thing that I want to care about again. Because also at the time um, at the school, so it was a, it's a Christian school uh, as a part of a, a worship team there. Um, and my the last configuration of a worship team that I was in was basically all minorities except for uh, my roommate and one other person who are like kind of the whitest people you could imagine. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but it was, so I met, uh, my co-leader was Mong is Mong. Um, and then we had, uh, two black people. One of them, I think, I think she was black and Latin American. So I don't know, just like a lot of like all of the diversity that you could imagine, uh, of like our department and kind of of the school was represented in our one band, you know? Um, And so we just, that made race because like it was, it became a safe space for the other non-white members of that group. Um, And I think they just welcomed me in maybe assuming some things and and not realizing some things. And so again, taught me uh, really individually just like, yo, this is who I am and I love it. Um, you know, uh, that was, was so cool. And I think like looking back on that now, I realized that there were probably, uh, moments in my life because I've always been surrounded by always, uh, because I've usually been surrounded by small pockets of people of color. Um, they may have looked to me, uh, as a means of support or solidarity, or just like, you get it right. You know, that lack of translation that is, is so, uh, easy um, in a, in those safe spaces, and so even though I was welcomed into those safe spaces, I was still like, I don't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that was yeah. So just looking back, like I'm really grateful for those because, like that being a part of that team, and then finding out about API Month, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I can really here's a thing that I can celebrate and and revel in. But I don't know if I did any research just beyond like, I'm Korean and I'm proud of it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so that was. And then I kind of put it to bed again until uh, a little bit later working in Springfield and living in Springfield. And then especially again this year in 2020. Hmm. Great transition. Actually, next question is when and why did you move to Springfield? And then we can we can get into what Springfield is like after that. We'll get into it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I moved here for a job. I graduated in 2015. Uh, My wife is a year, was a year behind me in school. So um, being both from Dallas, we were like, I was thinking, oh, well, I'll move to St. Louis because that's, you know, close to Mizzou uh, or I'll just move back to Dallas. We'll do, I mean, we're still long distance. So changing distance doesn't really matter. So um, move back to Dallas or our family is whatever. Um, But then the church that I, currently work for called the school 
and said, hey, we're looking for a new worship leader. Do you have any recommendations on graduating seniors? So that's how I got the job. And that's how I ended up moving here because Springfield was 0% on my map um, of places to live. So yeah, so I've been working for the church uh, since I graduated. So about five and a half years now. Right. Wow. Yeah. And like, okay, there, there's so much to cover here. Um, you (laughs) (laughs) going, okay. So I know that you're like the worship and creative director at, um, Schweitzer now. Um, but, but you also talked about how, um, faith and your faith was a very, very big part of your life growing up and even now right um so sorry I'm kind of scattered but backtracking a little bit um would you be able to talk about like the progression of your relationship with your faith up till now and what like what kind of opportunities do you think your faith has opened up to you and what do you think your faith means to you because I'm always interested in talking to people about their religious backgrounds, their faiths, because I personally have a very uh, complicated relationship with my own, like, faith, religion, whatever you want to call it. Um, Spiritualism or yeah, lack thereof. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, what is your what, what do you feel like your faith has meant to you? Okay, so um, I realize that Christianity is uh, pretty prevalent in America. Um, it just kind of exists in most people's understanding. Uh, exists in the cultural zeitgeist, if you will. Uh, my wife hates it when I say that word. <laughs> um, so individually, um, it has meant a whole lot of things. Uh, what I have come to love it for um, and be really grateful for is the worldview it has given me. Um, So I, uh, without getting into all of the specifics, I guess, because this isn't a faith podcast, um, grew up very uh, religiously conservative, um, but my worship style was very uh, charismatic. There was lots of um, clapping and dancing and singing out loud and uh, you know, like for the, the, for the denomination that I grew up in, which is Methodism, uh, was a very like Holy spirit kind of focused, uh, or emphasis. There's a, an emphasis on the Holy spirit, um, in my faith tradition, which is not typical for Methodism, at least in the Methodist churches that I've experienced. Uh, so religiously conservative, um, maybe like kind of just in, in the worldview, just kind of a very traditional old world, whatever. Uh, also Texas, you know, so you probably get it. Um, but then as a worship style, kind of the opposite of that, really. Um, and so then I went to Greenville, where uh, religiously fairly progressive, fairly liberal, um, but the worship style was very traditional, very closed off, very like we just like want to sing the hymns and speak the chants and do all of those things, right? So it was really nice for me having that flip-flop also, it's such a unique time in my life, right? So growing up in this place um, and then flipping over. So uh, for me, I think I have really come to love the um, the mystery of uh, Christianity. So as far as I know, Christianity is the only religion that celebrates um, a Trinitarian deity, uh, which is as difficult to understand as just the idea of infinity, right? Three persons in one. 
but the the beauty of the Trinity is uh, that there is basically just an infinite God who loves gray areas. Um, and so when I think about like representation of Christianity in the media, it's always Christianity versus science or Christianity versus whatever, just like, and it makes it feel like Christians in America are very uh, kind of backwards or like deeply conservative or Mm. really problematic as like Westboro Baptist church might have you assume, or like all you hear is like about the scandals and you're like, well, you're supposed to have, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to have this moral high ground and look how far the mighty have fallen. You know, that's like a a common news story or something like that. Um, But for me, I just, I really like that Christianity uh, is a religion that celebrates those gray areas, celebrates mystery. Um, One of my professors said, and is the holy conjunction. Like we have to deal with and, you know, and have to be able to navigate those tensions well. So when I think about now, just the intersectionalities that make up who I am, uh, I think Christianity has really given a strong basis for navigating with those gray areas. Uh, Because, you know, if I think uh, maybe a more hot button issue is, you know, um, queer people in the church uh, and how, you know, whether or not they're going to hell, essentially. Um, and for me, I have to navigate and, you know, like, how do I, you know, love queer people and love them like Jesus would, and then also deal with like what the Bible says, don't do that, you know? And so, um, so just trying to like those mental hurdles, I think have really prepared me and done me a lot of service in being a more compassionate, more gracious speaker, listener, uh, advocate, supporter, um, et cetera, for how I move about the world. I will also say uh, I currently identify as post-evangelical, heavy air quotes, um, which means uh, however American Christianity is represented in the media, however, uh, you know, like if you think about like if there was like a a BuzzFeed list about like – you're like things that only Christians would understand, you know, whatever, like I get that, but I very much like want to move past that uh, to a different kind of space in my life. Uh, So there is a lot about uh, what I think about quote unquote mainstream churches or, um, you know, if, if the label basic Christian could be slapped onto something like I get those jokes and I understand that, but I want to move past that, I guess. Uh, So it's a, it's a weird space. And I don't know that there are like a ton of us, um, like it's very much a minority culture within kind of a religious institution. So, yeah. So that makes it interesting too. just working for a mainstream, definitely evangelical Protestant evangelical church. So. Right. Um, do do you feel like your faith and your exploration of your racial identity intersect and play off of one another? Um, and, and for example, like, do you think, your faith has played a role in your journey to learning more about being Asian American and also vice versa. And, and do you also think that has changed after you came to Springfield? Uh, it's definitely changed. Um, and I, I think that there probably wasn't a whole lot of intersectionality growing up because, uh, like I said, my faith existed in very white spaces um, because like there are a lot of stereotypes and jokes made about Koreans in church. Uh, even like I'm rewatching Gilmore girls and like Lane and Mrs. Kim are always making jokes about Korean churches. I'm like, I get those jokes. That's not for me. Um, Cause I was raised by white parents, but like, I get those jokes. And then like, I obviously didn't really go to a black church. Um, but when I went to college kind of started hearing about black churches and the difference in their 
and how they believe um, versus white churches, you know, uh, and, and it is significant and it is important. Um, so because I grew up in very much a white church context, uh, there wasn't a lot of crossover between uh, faith and race. Now, however, uh, having mm, come into a fuller understanding of uh, being Asian American, being a minority in America, being uh, Christian, and um, there was another, and oh, and social justice, right? And what is our role uh, for Christians? What's our role to um, be active, I guess, in politics? Uh, and be like Jesus um, and combat systemic racism and other things. Like, it's just, it's a weird, uh, I just feel like I'm constantly stabbing my brain. Um, So just trying to unlearn and relearn and unravel all of these unique intersectionalities. And and what I come back to is, uh, you know, like in the 90s, I remember what would Jesus do was a big phrase. Uh, there were like WWJD bracelets and things like that. Um, and it's such a simple question, but now I've found myself like regularly asking what would Jesus do and just not being able to come up with an answer. Um, like Jesus as part of the Trinity exists to make an infinite God more knowable, more relatable, right? Um, that's kind of what we believe. And then like the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, whichever descriptor you like to use um exists because like uh kind of in that uh, almost in like a, a yoga ish type saying like so that uh, part of the deity that we worship lives and breathes and moves within uh believers right so uh there is an infinite ways to be right about who god is and infinite ways to represent who god who god is um so i'm just trying to figure out my own like what would Jesus do in this moment of 2020? Um, and it's it's been yeah, just really interesting because I'm I feel myself breaking away from the worldviews that I was given, and yet deeply loving them and deeply like trying to honor the tradition and the test of time and, and all of those things, right? So uh, yeah, it's been a lot to try to figure out like what does it mean to be. Asian American in a political sense, in just a living sense. But then what does it mean to be Asian American in a religious sense? And how does that then inform how I go about being in the world? So it's a lot. I don't think I ever actually answered your question, but those are all the things that are floating around in my brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, how how have you navigated being in Springfield, Missouri as an Asian American person? Um, so my, I don't know. So one of my friends actually, uh, she works for the city and, um, she is Japanese American and she will regularly post on her Facebook, her experience being an Asian American in Springfield. Um, and so that has been probably the single most helpful thing for me to think about what it means to be Asian American, um, period. Uh, Because I haven't had that many Asian American friends. And so um, as I just try to be a better human, a more well-rounded human being, and also like try to understand, like I am practically, uh, what month are we in? November. So 
May. So what is that math? Six months. I'm a six month old Asian American, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm barely learning how to crawl. Is that what toddlers yeah. learn? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> whereas most people my age would be like, well, I have 27 years of experience being Asian American. You know what I mean? So uh, it's just like I'm back to that space of like grasping at anything, trying to figure out wh- how do we move in the world? Because uh, now we have social media and we have platforms that we can use to help educate our friends and our peers, you know? Um, so I really appreciate her just posting her experience. And so uh, mostly what that's meant is uh, I have a very physiological response anytime I see a Trump flag, less so with a Trump sign, mm. because I, I get like, you know, you can support Trump kind of quietly or a lot like loudly but not like in an abrasive way but like a trump flag is a real statement you know um and in springfield like you get like a big old ford truck or a dodge ram mm-hmm. or whatever and you've got like a huge mm-hmm. flag and actually like um the house that i live in uh previous owners would fly a confederate flag in the backyard like um so there is like dallas as a hub is is really kind of unique from the rest of texas just a because it's a big city so it's already going to get some like blue influence that way but like it just was a a whole thing so living in springfield um where the the culture of the people is very uh, for me and uh, again i've only lived here for five years but it feels like um you know we built this whole kind of agrarian community and now all of us decided to meet in the middle and we've called it springfield so you know like it's it's like not like farmers or like ranchers or anything like that but it is just kind of like a more rural sensibility in a suburby type space right so yeah. like when i moved here i was like oh suburbs i get this except it's not attached to a big city but like i get this space and then the longer i live here i'm like oh i don't get this at all because that rural america sensibility that's not something that i grew up with uh mm-hmm. it's only something that i saw in movies and things so it's just been interesting so i have a very visceral reaction to seeing trump flags uh i like when the masks um, mandates and things started rolling out, like early days of the pandemic, uh, I was really nervous going out and grocery shopping um, or walking into, you know, a Walgreens or whatever, just like living my life because uh, I am Asian American and uh, our president uh, decided to say things like the virus from China or the Kung flu or, you know, whatever. Um, And just putting out all of this, like, very like racist sentiment you know on an on a national platform and so uh because i live in a very red we live in a very red town in a very red state uh it just made me more scared to be alive uh mm-hmm. so that's been fun um and yet at the same time i like have found so much solidarity and comfort and uh grace and just been like a breath of fresh air with the um BIPOC in Springfield in that community that I'm a part of. Uh, so it's been like, like a whole thing about learning who I am. And then, you know, I mean, like in June, I was just like, how do black people ever laugh? How do they ever smile? Like, because the weight, like I was just given so much, uh, I was just downloaded with myself with so much history and so much, um, just the history of race in America. Right. And I was like, this burden is so heavy how how does anyone ever laugh um because the white people white people can be willfully uh, or unwillfully ignorant of the racist systems that exist in america and black people are like yo i'm suffering under this weight right and so even me as a uh asian east asian um i was just like oh my gosh i still feel that weight you know uh maybe in a way that is different 
than I would in Dallas because at least in Dallas, I could blend in as one of the minorities, right? Like there's a big community of minorities to blend into. So it was just like a, that whole part of town. Whereas here, I'm like one of the one, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I very much am seen and uh, very much am an individual. Uh, so yeah, that's been been interesting. 100%. I, I, I completely relate to everything you just said. Um, I mean, I've lived in Springfield for four years now, around that amount of time. And like, I don't go out very often because I was telling KJ, I don't drive. I can't drive. So I can't really go anywhere by myself. Um, but every time, especially when the pandemic started, um, especially after George Floyd's murder, and all these racial tensions started flaring up in like in our country but just being an asian american in springfield like exactly the same as you like when i went to grocery stores i'd also i'd always be super i don't know like afraid i'd always be like looking behind me i'm like oh shoot like i don't want anything bad to happen to me or my family i don't want people to start spouting racist like phrases and yeah, like exactly. all this hatred um so but but I all I, I always was like am I just am I overreacting because like nothing is nothing has explicitly like happened to me in this city before mm-hmm. um but I don't know it's just it, it's 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 also difficult when you're in a place like this and you're like okay I really want to combat systemic racism i want to push back against this hatred but how do i do that in a place where it feels like this hatred is so and this tension is so rooted in the city rooted in people's minds like over the summer i was reading history of springfield and um there's some really terrible terrible things that have happened in this city before um in regards to um the treatment of black people in the city and everything like that. So, I mean, like how, like how have you reconciled with this question of like, what can I, like one Asian American in this white town do to combat systemic racism? Like, yeah. How have you grappled with that? So, uh, it's been a lot. Uh, and I was really grateful I think, I think grateful, uh, that the election was this year, um, because I got very excited to vote locally. Mm. Um, because, you know, like I, like many of Americans feel like my vote doesn't count in a big way for like the presidential election. Right. Um, so I, I certainly understand that sentiment, but Springfield is such a small town, um, that my vote really counts in Springfield. Uh, And so, you know, I was reading, um, I read both of Ibram Kendi's books, uh, Stand from the Beginning and uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And one of his big, um, one of the big things that he posits in How to Be an Anti-Racist is to vote for anti-racist policy and that uh, passing anti-racist policy helps move the needle forward into anti a a more anti-racist world, right? Um, So I was really excited to vote. Uh, so I feel like you know, locally that was a thing, but also it's kind of the catch 22 of like your, uh, your voice 
goes further in smaller local elections and things, but it's also significantly harder to find information about your local officials. Uh, so, you know, it's content versus distribution and trying to figure, figure that out. Um, also, uh, I got connected to, um, a friend who is very well networked in Springfield. So I was recently, uh, on a panel, um, for making Springfield a more diverse place. Um, which I shared with, uh, three other, well, four other minorities, um, which is really cool, uh, is a part of Springfield Chamber of Commerce network for young professionals. Um, so there's hope, right? Uh, and as long as I live here, I'm going to try to be connected and be loud. Um, and so I think it's, it's given me like self-racializing now, uh, has given me a lot to be proud about. Uh, and a lot to be loud about. Um, and also, um, like I know that your your show is based off of uh, Hasan Minaj's uh, stand up, right? Mm-hmm. So I watched um, hit an episode of the Patriot Act called "Don't Ignore the Asian Vote" in 2020, and that was the first time that I had ever understood Asian America as a historic people group. Um, and so, being and I'm so grateful to him and his team for that episode. Like that episode alone probably sh- really shaped shaped shifted, uh, whichever of those two words I want to use, uh, shaped how I think about being Asian American, because that was the first time that I'd ever heard our history described and collected. And, you know, it was kind of like, it was kind of like black history, but then like, also don't forget about us, (laughs) but like, just like, so that was really, really cool and, and really empowering. And so, uh, I just felt this source of pride, I guess, in being Korean American and being Asian American. Um, and so just I think being unapologetic about it and on the one hand being like I want to be the most gracious the most compassionate the most uh loving person I can be um it within my sphere of influence which as a worship leader for a church maybe that's a little bit bigger um and and might hold a little bit more sway or maybe it actually does a lot to detract that I don't know um but like just thinking about how much good can I do beyond an, an individual basis. Uh, so whether that is voting for um, the right, you know, elected officials for Springfield, for Greene County, for Missouri, um, like even just seeing um, the number of uncontested uh, seats for the state of Missouri. I was like, really? No one else was going to run for that? For the state? You know, mm-hmm. like, I was like, well, maybe I should. I don't, I'm never going to run for office, any type of office. But KJ, like, let's I was go. like, wow. That, that was just like, who can I support? You know, like, I'm, I'm just like, who can I get loud about? You know, and I think that uh, just like you're doing right now, um, Asian Americans are like, wait, we have the tools uh, to be loud, to be unapologetic, to love who we are, right? And so I think just coming into like we as a people, especially I think East Asians, um, realizing that we're a minority in America, figuring out how then to navigate that and then like being loud about it and being proud about that is uh, the best thing. Just being like, accept us for who we are, um, that there are other much more burdened um minority groups, people, uh, you know, oppressed groups, whatever, who are, who love themselves, who, um, are proud of themselves, who are just saying like, Hey, America stand and recognize that we are people who deserve to be treated like people who are deserve to be treated with the same love and grace and respect as whoever else in America. Right. And so, um, I think just doing that individually, like being unashamedly, unabashedly Asian American, and also 
doing my best to encourage love and compassion and celebrating other people uh, who are doing the same things. You know, that's like, I guess what I'm doing to make Springfield and my, my own world a better place. Yes. Preach KJ. That is great. Honestly, like I, this was also my first time voting in my, my, my first time voting period. Uh, but you know, in Springfield, because I've, I've been at home lately and it also felt quite empowering to do so um especially as you know a person of color as an asian american just being able to cast my vote in a place like this i was like wow like this is so empowering and so exciting um but i but i completely agree i think the asian american community doesn't have i think doesn't have a sense of collectiveness like a common thread going through us as much as other like historically marginalized groups do um i think a lot of factors contribute to that like including we're such we're such a big 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 group uh, comprising of many different ethnicities um and and other reasons too but i think yeah i think that's one reason why i wanted to start a podcast like this like tackle the question who is america who is asian america these this is asian america these all like all of the guests that i have on my podcast like this is asian america these are our stories um so yes yeah i think it's interesting like because of slavery um a lot of the black people in america were robbed of their cultural roots right um, and so uh, I certainly identify with that journey because adoption in some sense, like I feel robbed of my cultural roots. Right. And so I'm, I'm learning uh, anachronistically, like what it means to be Korean, you know? So like, if you have the privilege of knowing that, you know, if, like if you're a black person in America and you have the privilege of knowing that you originate from Ghana or you originate from Kenya, you originate from, uh, you know, Nigeria, then like you can kind of anachronistically go back and like and adopt those cultures and adopt those things. And, and we've seen people do that. Right. Um, but what's, what's interesting and unique, I think about an Asian American journey is uh, from my perspective, we're all immigrants. Um, whether that was through adoption or through volition, you know, like we're children of immigrants, we're children of refugees, we're children of adoption, right? That there, um, I mean, obviously there aren't any like native <laughs> Asians in America per se, but uh, like we come with our histories and we come with our cultures and our languages and our foods. Um, and I think that's what makes it so difficult uh, for Asian Americans to see ourselves as Asian American is because like we immigrated into the country through one mean or another and wanted to survive we thought like uh, survival equals assimilation right and so then the next generation of like the children of immigrants you know first gens and second gens they were like well survive like, we're no longer in survival mode which means we're no longer in assimilation mode so we can choose to be like and we're also then uh, truly byproduct of america right this highly individual nation um, and so they're like yo I am Korean American, right? It's not good enough for me to uh, to consider myself Asian American, but actually it is better for me to consider myself Korean American, right? And I'm actually, I'm really curious for how you navigate that being uh, a child of two different countries. But um, like, because we all 
come into that. And like in Asia, I mean, not that Africa is not also a large continent, but because Asia is such a large continent, like um, it took me a really long time to get used to the idea that Indians were Asian because that like India was just like a whole nother place on the planet for me uh, growing up. Um, so yeah, so just like being able to, to think about that and breaking down that monolith uh, and monolithic idea of Asian Americans being the same. Um, but then also like, I love that you started a podcast because like there just needs to be more content that doesn't fit into a white American point of view. Right. And I think that we, as a people standing up and being like, I am Korean American, I am Japanese American or, uh, Saudi American or Iranian American, whatever that is. Right. And, um, and just being like, this is who we are, right. That we are like, you might accept us as a mosaic, but like, we are also individual peoples and just tossing aside the label, um, and the, the need to fit into Asian America and just being like, you know what, if, if your table isn't big enough to support all of us, then we'll just build our own tables and have our own parties. Right. And I think that's, I love that that's what you're doing with your podcast. That's certainly what we were doing with our podcast. Um, so yeah, it's just like, if you're not going to create content, for, we don't actually need you to create content for us. We don't need you to be gatekeepers. We'll just do it ourselves and we're great at it. So, right. yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. I, I literally had that revelation when um, I started following Next Shark on Instagram. You, you know Next Shark, right? Like the, oh, it's like this news it's like this news media company that specifically focuses on Asian, Asian American, like news and stories. And, and like, I just subscribed to it like a few months ago or something, but every single story I swear I never read or hear about in mainstream news sources. And I'm like, wow, like there are so many things that are happening that I just don't hear about that people just don't hear about and is not covered in these huge like news and media companies. Yeah. So I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely recommend like subscribing to them because they have, oh, like, I just can't, like, it's just like, wow, these stories are just never covered. Like really? Like they don't have, like they don't have worth or value to these other news sources. Like, yeah. But also uh, little America on Apple TV uh, that's real good. It's just like, it's big stories, but like kind of small stories too. Uh, and it's at least as far as I've seen, I've only watched a couple episodes, but like no white people, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it's really, really great vignettes of just different, um, people in America, people of color in America who just crush the game. Um, and yeah, it's just like in my own journey to reduce the amount of white centric content that I consume, little America was a, a really wonderful oasis on a not very well-known platform or a platform that I guess that people don't think about is Apple TV. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple more questions, but I might cut down on one because we're sort of running out of time. Uh, but I want to give you a chance to talk briefly about, um, the Jaunchi show, because I know, that has been a really, really cool endeavor that you have been taking on with um, your your friends, Nathan and Patrick, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So do you want to tell the listeners what The Jaunchy Show is? Sure. So The Jaunchy Show is a podcast uh, for uh, Korean-American adoptees um, because there's a lot of us. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of Korean adoptees. There are a lot of adoptees. But for us, it's just three Korean-American adoptees who are um, – I guess the, the term is coming out of the fog. Uh, 
our so Nathan, one of our co-hosts, is uh, much further along in his journey than I am or that than Patrick is. Patrick is probably the newest to his journey, uh, but it's really just the idea of uh, like I mean, in the top of the show, reclaiming our narratives and uh, figuring out what it means for us to be adopted, um, and so letting go of all of the narratives that our parents gave us or that society gives us or whatever. Um, but in a way that really celebrates, um, adoption celebrates being Korean celebrates, uh, our lack of understanding and our journey into further understanding. Uh, so, I mean, our whole goal is just to have a lot of fun, uh, to help amplify stories of other adoptees because like, especially in the adoptee space, um, like I growing up, I never, ever saw or heard of an adoptee um in media that wasn't white uh, and it wasn't a white person being adopted by other white people and so like you know i i don't know i feel like when i was younger there was a lot of uh stories about like or storylines um for characters about like adoption and that like when they realized they were adopted it always floored them but I, that was never a thing that i understood until i realized that it was a white parent telling their white kid hey you're adopted <laughs> it was like for me i was always adopted like that's i looked i never looked anything like my parents so that wasn't like a, an earth shattering revelation um so yeah so that's that's what the john Chi show is it's literally us building um a new table and trying to enter into the korean adopted community and saying like yo let's bring some fun let's bring the party uh have some good food have some drinks um and let's have a thing that we can all all laugh at hopefully laugh yeah with. definitely yeah yeah i was i was i was telling you this before but i really really love the vibe of your podcast like you all have such great camaraderie and i know you only you you've never met each other in person but no. you would like listeners would never have guessed that if they were listening to the podcast and i also think it's really really great that you're centering these um Korean adoptee stories, right? Like their stories in their own words, their own voices. Um, because also like you, I've, I have never really seen very much like adoptee adoption literature or media, let alone transracial adoptee or Korean adoptee literature or media. Um, so really, really great that you're doing this. And I'm sure there are like a ton of like young, um, people who are listening to this who feel like super empowered and excited um, about the community that you're building. So yes, I super, super support the John Chi show. Um, last quick question, KJ. I just want to ask you like, where, like, how, how do you feel now where you're at in terms of your journey to exploring your Asian American identity, your Korean identity, your relationship with your faith, etc. Like all these different journeys right now, like, where do you feel like you're at? Do you feel like you're at peace? There's so much more to explore. What do you want to explore in the future? Yeah. Um, so you know how uh, post George Floyd, everyone was posting things about social justice, about race, about like all these things. And depending on how white your Instagram feed was, um, it's any range of like, we've been saying this for years to like, Oh my God, I can't believe this has been happening all this time. And my, I've just never known it before. And now I have to do all of this reading and research and things. And like, wow, you know, like, like there, there was just such a, a range of reaction to that. Right. Um, but generally it just, it was a, a flashpoint for, um, a bunch of white people mostly, but, um, also probably adoptees and things. Um, just a, a flashpoint for like 
a whole large demographic of people waking up to the reality of uh, the inequities in America and how systemic and rooted, uh, deeply rooted that is. Um, so I went on that journey uh, to and was trying to uh, just learn all that I could. Um, and so, and that coincided with, you know, starting the show, uh, starting the John Chi show. So um, I think now I'm at a place where I have filled my brain with as much stuff as I can fill it with. And now it's time to take a moment and digest. And mm. uh, I don't know if digesting means um, journaling or blogging for myself, or if that means having conversations with people, whatever that means, right? Like I am filled to bursting uh, and need a, uh, an ability to digest and let it go from my head to my heart so that it can truly influence the way that I move in the world uh, so that I can let it really shape my worldview um, and make me a better person. So that's where I am kind of with all of it. Wow. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing, KJ. We covered so much in this podcast. And honestly, like I could talk to you all day. So I'm definitely excited to connect with you more in the future. But before you go, what is a piece of advice that you'd give to someone out there? Could be a transracial adoptee, could be a young Asian American living in the middle of nowhere who is struggling with their identity and doesn't really know fully like who they are. Learn to love yourself well and fully. Uh, and don't uh, gatekeep yourself from an identity. Um, I... Growing up and still to this day, regularly feel like I am not blank enough, uh, whether it's Korean enough or uh, Christian enough or you know whatever enough to fit in. Uh, so I'm going to say this to a previous version of myself, I guess. Stop gatekeeping yourself. Uh, stop saying that you're not enough and just be proud of who you are and be okay with however much you are, right? Because you can grow in all things. You can grow in being uh, more whatever identity you feel like you like you can grow into those things. So just uh, love yourself and accept yourself for where you are, knowing that you can grow into that, accept that you are maybe hopefully further along than uh, when you were younger. Um, but yeah, just love yourself, be proud of it, be unashamed about who you are uh, because who you are is wonderful and good and the world needs you to be you. Wow, so beautiful. Thank you so much, KJ, for all of your amazing insights your stories that you shared today. Last thing before you go, if any one of the listeners is interested in reaching out to you, asking you a question about anything that you talked about today or interested in listening to The Jaunchi Show, where can they find you? Where can they find The Jaunchi Show? Absolutely. So you can find The Jaunchi Show on all social media platforms at Jaunchi Show, uh, J-A-N-C-H-I Show. Uh, Janchi show. Well, wait, Janchi means like party or celebration or whatever in Korean, which is why we decided to pick that. Uh, you can find me on any social media platform that I want to be found at KJ Relke, KJ R O E L K E, uh, or some variation of that. Cause I don't know like what my YouTube or SoundCloud is, but it's some variation of that. So yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, KJ. I will link the Janchi show on a podcast platform in the episode description. I'll also link your website. It's got a lot of great information about you and how to reach out to you as well. So everyone, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And KJ, thank you, thank you, thank you again for being such a great guest. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Homecoming Pod. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms and leave us five stars and a positive review on iTunes. As always, I really appreciate all of your support and I'll see you next Saturday with a brand new episode with Miss Washington Teen USA, Marianne Bautista on diversity in pageantry.